Life Audio. Christian Parent Crazy World with Katherine Seegers is brought to you by Life Audio and is part of our Faith Toolkit series. For more inspirational faith-affirming podcasts, visit lifeaudio.com. Welcome to Christian Parent Crazy World, the podcast that tackles tough topics to help you be a godly parent in an ungodly world. I am your host, Katherine Seegers, and in today's episode, we will tackle this fascinating question. Where does cancel culture come from? Hmm, of course, cancel culture is nothing new. We see it all throughout scripture and history. The enemy loves nothing better than to cancel people. He tried to cancel Jesus, didn't work, but he never stops trying to silence the truth. Today, we are going to dig into the new political movement of cancel culture. Where does that come from? Understanding the roots of a movement is critically important. My special guest today is an expert on this topic. He's been here before. Dr. Douglas Groteis is one of the leading apologists of our day, a brilliant, deep thinker with expertise in the fields of philosophy, theology, religion, and culture. So there's no one better to help us unpack the topic of cancel culture than Dr. Groteis. That's the plan for this episode of Christian Parent Crazy World. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hey, moms and dads, would you please take a moment and subscribe to Christian Parent Crazy World on whatever app you're listening on and also subscribe over at KatherineSeegers.com. I have so many resources for parents of prodigals, for moms battling the myths that this culture spreads, spiritual resources to help you in prayer for your kiddos and so much more. And of course, you will be the first to hear about new episodes and articles that I've published. All right, so my very special guest for this episode is one of the greatest apologetic minds in the world today. He is the author of dozens of books and scholarly articles, including my massive Christian apologetics textbook titled Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith, which was a primary textbook in my master's program at Colorado Christian University. I am speaking of none other than Dr. Douglas Groteis. As I mentioned the last time Dr. Groteis joined us, you could use that textbook as a doorweight or a weapon. I'm not recommending that because it has far better uses. 
but it is truly a weapon against secular ideology. And so is Dr. Grotai. So we are going to be discussing one of his new books today, Fire in the Streets, how you can confidently respond to incendiary cultural topics. Wow, is that ever a necessary discipline to learn? Dr. Groteis has served as a professor of philosophy and the head of the apologetics and ethics program at Denver Seminary since 1993, and he is looking forward to a new chapter as the Distinguished University Research Professor of Apologetics and Christian Worldview at Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Such a mouthful there. I've barely skimmed the surface of his accomplishments, but I know that you would rather hear from this incredible thinker than about this incredible thinker. So with that, let's jump right in. Dr. Groteis, welcome back to Christian Parent Crazy World. It is such an honor to have you here again. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be back. Yeah, you know, we got to talk at... And an episode that came out last summer, it was episode 66, How Can a Good God Allow So Much Evil and Suffering in the World? That, to date, is one of the best performing podcasts I've had all year in 2023. A uh, wonderful show. And uh, that was, you shared your testimony so beautifully in that episode. And then we talked about having you back on to talk about your latest book, Fire in the Streets, How You Can Confidently Respond to Incendiary Cultural Topics. I love this book. I have torn it up. I've got highlights in four different colors. Nobody's going to want to read this copy (laughs) after I'm done with it because, well, maybe they will if they want to know what I thought was relevant, which was most of it. I've got so so much of it highlighted. Uh, Actually, it's all relevant. Just so much of it is just beautifully written. I've studied this topic for years, and I know, I, I believe this is one of the defining issues of our day. And what I love about your book is that you not only unpack what the problem is, but you point us towards the solution. And, you know, there are a lot of people writing on critical race theory, critical theory, neo-Marxism, Marxism, but your book, what made you as a professor of theology and Christian apologetics with deep roots in philosophy? Obviously, this is in your wheelhouse. This is right in the type of topics that you would be interested in, but there are a lot of people writing on it. What made you want to write a book on this topic? What did you feel like was missing on the bookshelf that you could supply? Well, a lot of it came out of the crisis of 2020 when our streets were on fire and buildings are being torn down. Police officers were being attacked. We heard these crazy phrases like defund the police mm-hmm. and America is a systemically racist country. The American experiment has died. I heard all this language and it kept going on and on. And people started asking me, where did this come from intellectually? And I knew because, as you said, I'm an academic and I study the history of philosophy and I've studied political philosophy and so on. So I decided, actually it was the summer of 2020, I was in rural Alaska at the time in a small town called Willow, Alaska with my wife, Kathleen. We really wondered if we should go back to Denver. That's where we live. And I thought, that is serious if I'm wondering if I, it's safe to go back to suburban Denver because Denver was experiencing lots of protests around the capital and even some suburban neighborhoods are being targeted by the radical rioters. So I did what I usually do when I get concerned about something. I wrote a book <laughs> and uh, I found a publisher about it. And it's not maybe all that important important in some ways, but I wrote this book with a great 
sense of urgency and passion. I wrote it pretty quickly within about four months. And actually the first manuscript was quite a bit longer than what we have in the book now, uh, because there was so much I wanted to say. And I've been able to get the rest of it published elsewhere. But I, I love America. I'm a Christian. My first allegiance is to my heavenly citizenship with Christ and the kingdom of God and the church. But God places us wherever we are. Paul says that clearly in Acts 17. And we should seek the welfare of the city to which we are exiled, Jeremiah 29, 7. So I thought, I'm an academic. I have time to write. I found a publisher, Salem. So I decided to try to explain what was going on and why it was going on, and then try to give a better response than uh, fire in the streets. Mm. Yeah. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed this, and I know it's going to be a book that I keep coming back to over and over again to help me unpack what's going on in our our country. I wanted to start off by giving an example that I think will hit close to home for you because you have been in academia for all of your adult life. And I know it's going to hit close to home for the parents that are in my audience because we have, I've graduated my first child who is taking a gap year, but planning to go to college. So you start off the book talking about those protests that you just mentioned. Between May and November, you say in 2020 that protests occurred in over 4,446 cities around the world, many of those in our country. One of those protests actually happened in the city of Charlottesville, Virginia. I used to live near there. And it was at the University of Virginia, a young student by the name of Morgan Bettinger on July 17th, 2020, was coming home from a 12-hour shift at her summer job, and she stumbled across a Black Lives Matter protest. Now, these protesters were lying in the street, and the city of Charlottesville, instead of relocating them or making sure that they were standing up so they could be seen, they actually deployed a dump truck to block the protest. And so Morgan pulls up, wonders what's going on. She gets out and she talks to the dump truck driver. He explains it. And she responds saying, wow, you know, it's it's a good thing that you're here. Otherwise, they could be speed bumps. And she was obviously very grateful that she hadn't run over them. However, some of the BLM protesters nearby heard Bettinger's comments and determined that what she said was actually a threat. They claimed that she was threatening to run over them and to make them speed bumps. At that point, the protest became a riot. They chased her back to her car. They surrounded the car. And she was terrified, obviously. And I wish I could say that that's where the story ended, but it didn't. There was a young woman who was protesting by the name of Zianna Bryant. She had a very large social media platform. She started tweeting out what had happened. She called Bettinger's comments a dangerous act of white supremacy, at which point the local news crews got involved. They all sided with Zianna Bryant, didn't even ask Morgan Bettinger what had happened. And she encouraged, Bryant was encouraging people to email UVA and to get Bettinger expelled from school, which is incredible. And then... Like I said, the local news organizations, one of them called it a chilling and violent threat. Several UVA faculty members started piling on. They were mocking Bettinger for her faith, mocking her family. Her father was in law enforcement. They started pressuring the school to expel her. They drug her through three investigations at the Judiciary Committee with UVA and 
she was ultimately, well, they determined that Zyanna Bryant hadn't even heard the original comments. Nevertheless, this was a Bettinger. Morgan was guilty of making a legitimate threat. And this went on her permanent record. She was suspended from campus, couldn't step on campus. And she managed to finally graduate online, but she wanted to go to law school and she can't because this infraction is on her permanent record. Meanwhile, Diana Bryant has been given several national awards and has become a spokesperson for the Dove Soap Company. I think this is terrifying for parents. You've been in academia all of your life. And I wanted to just show this as an example of exactly what you're talking about in your book here. And as a parent, I know we're all concerned, Dr. Grotheis, how did we get here? Yeah, I've heard that story, and it really is so unjust. And it comes out of a mentality. It's a false mentality. It's a false worldview. And it's this idea that American society is systemically racist. So any infraction or any offense that a person of color experiences can be chalked up to systemic racism. Now, there's a lot to that issue of systemic racism. Certainly, America has been systemically racist under slavery, and there were lots of impositions and unjust strictures put against blacks during the Jim Crow period, although many blacks managed to succeed, nevertheless, even under those strictures, which I think is a great testimony to the resilience of the African-American community. People like Robert Woodson have discussed that and Jason Riley and others. So, you know, it shows that even if society is against you, you don't have to be a victim. You don't have to mm-hmm. necessarily wilt under the pressure. But what happens here is that you have not the consideration of people as individuals and a concern for truth, but you have you know what we so often call a narrative. So there's this narrative of racial oppression. So just about anything a white person does that is taken to be offensive by a person of color is automatically viewed as a case of systemic racism and white supremacy and white privilege and all the rest of it, irrespective of the intention of the speaker or the writer. In fact, I won't go into detail, but this has even happened to me, where I very clearly said something and it was taken out of context and then I was accused of offending all these people. Mm. Well, you know, this doesn't do anyone any good. What does what does us good is to view all people as made in the image and likeness of God, which Genesis teaches, and that all people have fallen short of the glory of God. We all need to be redeemed through Christ. And we should also view ourselves as, if we are, as American citizens. We're part of a common cause. We're part of a great tradition. And what's behind all this is something called critical race theory. And it posits that any discrepancy among racial groups, uh, any lack of achievement by people of color is due to systemic racism. That's really the only or the main cause of all of it. So that's the lens you, you see everything, even things that are not unjust, like a young woman making a remark, I'm glad the truck is here, otherwise these these folks could, would be speed bumps. That's not offensive, actually. That's not a crime. That's not a, a threat for heaven's sake, it's just using a figure of speech. 
But things were so amped up at that time that everything was taken as an insult, as a threat, as a manifestation of white supremacy. And then there's this piling on, especially in the academy, especially in the secular academy, but also sometimes even in the Christian academy. People are afraid to be viewed as racist. So they will simply side with the critical race theory perspective on everything so they can show how woke they are and how sensitive they are and uh, that they're not part of the oppressive group. So this is a really good example of how this ideology becomes unjust and unfair. And this poor woman, I mean, you know, may God bless her and help her to overcome this stigma because it's an inappropriately applied stigma. Right. You know, we need appropriate stigmas. I mean, if people are truly racist and they use racial epithets and they won't hire a person of color and they badmouth people of color as a group, well, they they need to repent. You know, that's sin. Right. But simply saying, I'm glad the dump truck is here so people won't be speed bumps. There's nothing sinful about that at all. Mm -mm. So why waste your time doing persecuting someone like that when there are real criminals and real racists uh, that need to repent and reform? Mm. Oh, I love that you mentioned uh, Robert Woodson. I love the work that he's been doing in the inner cities. He right. is exactly, you know, because he left the civil rights movement. Uh, well, he was, I'm sorry, he was originally one of the original civil rights activists, but he kind of right. left the direction that they've gone, seeing that this isn't helping the inner cities, that all mm. of these inner cities that they are in control of are actually failing. And so he's been doing tremendous work out there in the inner cities to right. to help rehabilitate and to help put these these young people on the right path that may be disadvantaged at birth. He's he's doing tremendous work. So tell us, Dr. Grotes, what is the underlying ideology? Who are the major players that help to bring us to this place where Black Lives Matter activists are, are pouncing on a, a poor young girl who was just grateful that she didn't run over them? Yeah. Well, here's something to think about. I said this to my wife about a week ago, and I said, Kathleen, it won't be long until Black Lives Matter supports Hamas's attack on Israel. Mm. And she said, what? I said, just wait. <laughs> the next day, Black Lives Matter spokespeople started commending the Hamas attack on Israel. I think, why is that? I saw that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it didn't surprise me, but then I've got 45 years of study in all this. The reason is is critical race theory. So it really goes back to Marxism, the writings of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. It's, an, it's a version of Marxism, neo-Marxism. But the idea is that history is driven by the conflict between economic groups, between essentially the owners and the workers. And eventually, the workers will realize that they're being oppressed by private property and the profit motive and they will rise up against the owners and create a revolution and then forge a more just and equitable society. Well, everyone may have noticed that this has never happened. <laughs> uh, where Marxist revolutions have occurred, they've only brought horrible injustice and oppression. And we may be looking at 100 million right. people killed by their own governments under Marxism in the 20th century between the USSR and Maoist China and other places where the Marxists take over and say, we will set you free. And in fact, they just bring another form of bondage worse than what they were opposing. Pol Pot in Cambodia was responsible for the death of probably three or four million people. But that was something like 25 percent or more of the population. 
So in terms of percentages, mm. he's, he's the king of the killers. Mm. Mao Zedong may have been responsible for 60 million deaths of his own people during his lifetime. So you think, well, why would anyone want to view Marxism as an inspiration? Well, two basic reasons. One people, one reason is people are just ignoramuses. They don't know their history. They haven't read a little booklet. If you want to know what Marxism is, all you have to do is spend one hour reading a booklet called the Communist Manifesto mm-hmm. and then look into the history. I discuss the history of my book. And then also people are hopelessly idealistic often. Well, socialism sounds so wonderful and We have terms like equity and inclusion and diversity, and who could be against that? So the idea, let's go back to this conflict between the owners and the workers. And then in the 1920s and 30s, there's a group of people called the Frankfurt School, and they were Marxists and they were all atheists, but they said it didn't quite work out the way Marx thought. So we need to revise the theory and include really very overtly, people of color as being oppressed and sexual minorities being oppressed. And this developed through various thinkers. The leading thinker was a man named Herbert Marcuse, who was a German immigrant to the United States, a professor in California. And he was the mentor of Angela Davis, who is a celebrated yes. uh, radical thinker and an avowed communist. I mean, she was a member of the Communist Party. So it's not like you have white ring, right wing crazy saying, oh, commies everywhere. I mean, she said she was one and she's never right. really pulled back from that. And then lo and behold, she's a mentor to the leaders of Black Lives Matter. So this idea is of world revolution. The underclass, the oppressed need to rise up. And who are those people? Well, they're people of color. They're sexual minorities. Mm-hmm. They're people that have been held down by the colonialists, by the oppressive structures. And so it's not that everyone is made in the image and likeness of God, and there's certain principles of civil government that should be in place, like all men are created equal, which we have in our Declaration of Independence. It's that the oppressed need to rise up and overthrow the oppressors, really, by any means necessary, by any means necessary. So even though Horrible atrocities were committed by Hamas against the Israeli people. The idea is that they're on, and here's a phrase you hear a lot, the right side of history. Mm -hmm. They're part of the revolutionary vanguard. So when the Black Lives Matter advocates were tearing up and burning down cities in 2020, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Because by any means necessary. And when Hamas terrorists are killing even children and raping and killing women, I can't even... I know. Say more than that. It's just so horrible. Well, that's that's really okay because they're on the right side of history and they are rising up against the oppressors. So it's a very insidious and terrible ideology. So it can take really overt and violent forms or it can be more subtle. Let me give an example. I have a a friend named uh, Laura Powell. You might know her. She's a podcaster and writer. And she said in her Bible Belt town, I don't remember where it was, in the public school, a teacher told a parent, we do not read anything by white men because white men are oppressors throughout history. We don't want to give them a voice. Just a complete censoring and ban of reading white males. Really? So 
you're not going to read Aristotle or you're not going to read Abraham Lincoln Mm. because they're just part of this oppressive group, white males. So they have to be not refuted if you disagree with them. They have to be silenced. So this is where cancel culture comes from. Right. Mm -hmm. The historic American ideal, which we're losing, is Congress shall make no law respecting the abridgment of the freedom of speech. So the idea is that we have a marketplace of ideas and we should be able to discuss these ideas back and forth, have dialogue, debate, but at least let people come to the table, come to the microphone and discuss their ideas. Well, that's been replaced by the critical race theory that the oppressors should have no voice because they are intrinsically and incorrigibly toxic. So you don't let them speak their side. You just take away the microphone, deplatform them, fire them, censure them, even in cases where nothing has been done wrong, like this poor woman who made the speed bump remark. So this critical race theory ideology is really affecting our society in politics, in education, in media. Uh, You see it even in children's programming. So I want to expose it for what it is, a very ungodly philosophy based on a false and murderous philosophy of Marxist-Leninism and Marxist-Maoism and all the different permeations of Marxism and say, we need something better. And in fact, we have something better in the historic American ideals. And ultimately, those ideals at their best are grounded or can be grounded in the truth and rationality of the Christian worldview. So my book is a little bit different than some of the others because I critique the critical race theory approach and how it's affected the United States. But I also try to give a Christian apologetic. And I, in whatever I do, I, I usually try to present a Christian perspective or commend and defend a Christian perspective as pertaining to whatever issue I'm working on. Mm. And you do so, so beautifully in this book. I love that. I love that you connect the dots. You're going to get the history in this book, starting with Engels and Marx, like you said, and then you threw in Horkheimer, Max Horkheimer. He worked just before Mercuse. And Mercuse, obviously, the protege was Angela Davis. Her history is really utterly fascinating how she ended up getting involved with the Black Panthers and Black Power movement back in that era of the 60s. And I I actually listened to some podcasts on how she was responsible for, well, her one of her firearms was actually responsible for killing a a white judge out in California because of she was involved with that movement so heavily. It's it's fascinating. But, uh, you know, you mentioned Marcuse. He is definitely one of the major players that we have here in Repressive Tolerance, an essay that he wrote. This really brings to mind how this happened with Morgan Bettinger, who we were talking about. I was the example I gave. He really invents the idea of cancel culture. And he says in that that essay, quote, I suggest in repressive tolerance, the practice of discriminating tolerance in an inverse direction as a means of shifting the balance between right and left by restraining the liberty of the right, thus counteracting the pervasive inequality of freedom and strengthening the oppressed against the oppressor. He goes on to say, liberating tolerance then would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration from the left, end quote, which is fascinating. They clearly can't, (laughs) 
accept any kind of critique or criticism or open dialogue. And I love what you did in the very beginning of the book. I really camped out in the preface for quite a bit in the introduction because you establish the idea of classic liberalism, which I think sometimes conservatives or Christians can kind of brace at that term until you really understand what classic liberalism is. The idea that we we are all going to present our ideas and the best ideas win. That is not what this ideology is about. It's progressive to the point where they have to silence opposing ideas because they, they can't win in the marketplace of ideas. They cannot. And so uh, speak to that a little bit, Herbert Marcuse and the invention of this idea of cancel culture, because that's what happened to Morgan Bettinger. And that is necessary for critical race theory to prevail or to have any kind of success because they have to silence the opposition because they can't win in the marketplace of ideas. Right. Well, you picked the perfect quote, and I mentioned that in my book as well, mm-hmm. because Marcuse is at the bottom yes. of so much of this now. He is. And a lot of the Black Lives, well, the Black Lives Matter ideology is really just Black radicalism 2.0 from the 70s. Right. And it was very violent, very revolutionary, and it never completely went away, uh, but it certainly came back in force. And now we find that. Black Lives Matter has been very irresponsible with their money. Their leaders have multiple homes. Yes, I saw that. The millions of dollars that are unaccounted for. Yeah. And basically, this is because so many people, I think so many white people, had this general sense of guilt. Yes. And so they can throw money at a black organization and feel better Mm -hmm. about it. But I'm a philosopher, so this can get me into trouble, but I can't help myself. I just give arguments and evidence for what I believe, and try to get it out there in the world as broadly as possible. And I think to have intellectual integrity, you need to say, here's my position about this subject, here are my reasons for believing it, and what do you think? Do you think I'm wrong? So may the best argument win. But I have that view because I'm a Christian philosopher. I believe that the truth is what ultimately sets us free, Amen. Ultimately, the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. But knowing the truth is a good idea, right? (laughs) Uh, Manipulating ideologies and using propaganda is not a good idea. You lose your integrity by doing that. So we see cancel culture everywhere. And it's related to another idea in critical race theory, which is called standpoint epistemology. Yes. Which also comes out of Marxism. And it's the idea that only the oppressed have the proper standpoint to know what the truth is. And we'll put truth in quotation marks there. So especially if you are oppressed in an intersectional way, that is, you belong to more than one oppressed group, like let's say you're black and you're a woman and you're a lesbian and you're handicapped, Mm. then you have an automatic advantage to know what the truth is about your situation and the culture at, at large and even history. So the point of standpoint epistemology is, sure, let's listen to people's experience, let them testify. I obviously have no idea what it's like to be a black male in America, so I or a black female in America. So I try to listen to people that have had those experiences as black males or black females or Native Americans or Asian Americans or whatever they may be. But simply being a person of color or being a Caucasian doesn't cinch your take on reality. Mm -mm. You may know what your experience is, but you may misinterpret it. So let's say if uh, 
if you're a black male and you think you've been pulled over wrongly for being black, you know, there's this idea of the crime of driving while being black. Well, if you have, that's wrong. But you've also got to get into the social science here. So you've got to consider what about the statistics for police officers in how they interact with people of color. So you need to do some reading. So mm -hmm. I'd recommend reading Heather McDonald's book on crime. Yes, I love that you quoted her throughout the book. Yeah. What is the name of that book again? Um, I don't have it right in front of me, but I've heard her interviewed multiple times on those topics. Yes, she's a very good social science, uh, social scientist. Well, she's really she's probably the authority on what's yeah. happening in the police, you know, law enforcement in our country when it comes to those kind of altercations. Right. But I don't have that right in front of me. But, yes, I'd love that you quoted her. She's quite good. A lot in the book. So, you know, just being black or Hispanic doesn't tell you what's going on in terms of crime statistics. You need to research that. It doesn't tell you what the founding of the United States was. You need to research that and argue that. So standpoint epistemology is a very bad way of approaching social science, political theory, ethics, everything else. It's like there's a truth that's been inflated to absurdity. And the truth is that everyone has a vantage point and a perspective, and we should listen to their perspective out of love, have Use a jazz mm -hmm. phrase, big ears. You know, listen to people who've had different experiences, but then also realize where they have expertise and where they don't. And where people do not have expertise just by being a black or Hispanic or whatever else is basic facts of history and social science and scripture and all the rest of it. When it comes to those kind of things, it we should be colorblind. You know, facts are colorblind. Truth is colorblind. Reason is colorblind. Experiences are tinged by who you are and how you have lived. Absolutely. And we need to factor that into our assessments of culture and politics. But standpoint epistemology takes this one truth of the importance of particular perspective and then inflates it out to say, well, you cannot criticize a person who's been oppressed. You can't criticize someone for their perspective as a person of color. And I say, well, not because they're a person of color, that would be racist. But if you think they got their history wrong, then let's talk about it. I mean, for example, there's this very pervasive myth about the Constitution. It's called the Three-Fifths Clause. Right. And people will say, do you know the American Constitution says that blacks are only three-fifths human? How horrible. You see how racist from the beginning, how systemically racist we are. And I say, well, hold on. Let's do a little research. And I think I have four or five pages on this in the book, just to cut to the chase. Uh, the three-fifths clause was a compromise between the northern states and the southern states so we could have an American constitution and not have two separate countries. It was a compromise, and the north didn't want to do it, and the south didn't like it. So what's going on? Basically, it limited the representation of the south in the Congress because they were slave states, and the north didn't want them to count their slaves as part of the count that would give them more representative. So that's behind it. Actually, the three-fifths clause, it's sad that it was there. Right. It was overturned. But it was a compromise by engineered by the North to limit the legislative representational power of the Southern slave states. It was not a statement of metaphysics. You know, in fact, the Constitution doesn't even use the word slave or or race, which is very interesting. It, avoids it. it is. Ah, 
couple of directions I would love to go with this. And I love, I think one of the great quotes that you had in the book was from preacher E.V. Hill on page 142. And it's really, it really brings to home so many things you're talking about right now about the lived experience of people. And if those, if that's the lens that we're constantly looking through, then we're not looking through the right lens. And this quote from E.V. Hill, who was a black preacher, and he says this, I didn't know anything about a white Christ. I know about Christ, the Savior named Jesus. I don't know what color he is. He was born in brown Asia. He fled to black Africa and he was in heaven before the gospel got to white Europe. So I don't know what color he is. I do know one thing. If you bow at the altar with color on your mind and get up with color on your mind, go back again and keep going back until you no longer look at his color, but at his grace and at his power, his power to save. Mm-hmm. That was so powerful, mm-hmm. such a powerful comment. We we live in a culture and everything we've done to try to rectify the situation, to remedy the situation has seemed to exacerbate the divide that we have between the races. And if we're going where, where this needs to, to be cleansed is at the altar where we come to our savior who made us and who makes us equal mm-hmm. to one another and look through that lens. Not that our lived experience isn't relevant. It's very relevant. But as uh, the example that I gave at the beginning, things can be misperceived. And we, one thing I've constantly tried to hammer with my own children And I try to always remember is that I am not qualified to judge another person's motives. I don't know why another person says what they say. I I, I don't know why a person does what they do. That's above my pay grade. So I need to offer grace and mercy. And in that instance with Morgan Bettinger that we brought up to assume that her comments meant something nefarious and evil and sadistic is is so wrong on the part of anyone. And so we need to get beyond if we're constantly looking at everything through this lens of black and white, we need to be looking through a lens of red. And that's the blood that covered our sin and our differences and our history, what is wrong in our history. And there's definitely a lot that is wrong. But, you know, in the next episode, I want to talk to you about pointing us towards that direction of how the Christian worldview is the great equalizer. And you can't really arrive at that without that conclusion of equality from a secularist or humanist worldview, can you? No, not at all. And I find some of the conservative critics giving some very strong critique of critical race theory, but they often don't have a worldview to oppose it. They don't have an alternative. Right. And I think that's exactly what we have in the scripture. So... My book is a little bit different, I think, from some other ones in that that I give an apologetic for Christianity, and then I show how a Christian worldview uh, gives us a much truer, wiser, better view of society and how we can contribute to American society as as citizens and as participants. Yeah, I love your conclusion on page 197 of the book. I think this can bring our, our first episode To conclude this so well, you say, quote, this book has advocated that we fight fire 
with fire. However, the fire I commend is not the fire that animates CRT and its allied advocates and activists. It does not spark violent protests, riot, hate fest cancellations, or dismantling of the American system by limiting free speech, vilifying all white people, or imposing socialism. This fire is a well-reasoned, knowledgeable, and humble conviction that the American creed is worth reaffirming and living by, that all people are created equal by a just and loving God, and that a virtuous citizenry is necessary for the moral and spiritual recovery from the perils we now face. Ooh, that is such a powerful call to action for us as believers, Dr. Grotai. Speak to us just a bit in our closing moments about our call to action in this sphere as Christians. Well, I still agree with that statement, so that's good. <laughs> good. When, when you write a lot, you want to do I still agree with that. Yeah, I, I do. I'm very passionately behind that statement, and uh, we need to really outthink the world and outlive the world and know what our yes. convictions are and why we have them and not succumb to this by any means necessary mentality. We have principles. We have Christian principles of love and truth and justice. And as Americans, I think we should stay true to our founding ideals and not try to subvert the system. The system, as a system, I mean the constitutional arrangements, are very wise and very good. But so many people now are trying to torch the entire thing, that we were racist from the beginning, that we need to dismantle everything. And that's not the answer. Uh, The answer is to go back to our roots and figure out what they are, and then very wisely and passionately commit to the common good and the fear of God. And that's what you help us to do in this book so beautifully. I can't thank you enough for helping us to understand, Dr. Groteis, one of the most critical issues of our day. We've barely skimmed the surface. I I highly recommend that uh, that my listeners go and get this book because, you know, the terms Marxist or neo-Marxist, they've kind of become buzzword pejoratives in our culture today. They're kind of cliche concerns, which empties those labels or accusations of their meaning because we don't know what they're rooted in. We can't connect them if we don't understand the dots that you've connected so beautifully in this book because they aren't meaningless labels. This ideology is underlying much of what we see happening in the West today. It's insidious ideology. It's dangerous. And we ignore it to our own peril. Hosea 4.6 says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Your book, Fire in the Streets, is filled with knowledge. It's filled with wisdom and practical advice on what we can do as parents and as citizens to counteract this godless ideology in our homes and in the world. So why don't you please tell us where they can learn more about you, your podcast, Truth Mm -hmm. Tribe, which is awesome, and where they can get a copy of your book. Right. Well, you could get the book at the Salem webpage or probably for most people most easily at Amazon. And I have a web page with the very jazzy title, DouglasGrotheis.com. So a lot of <laughs> uh, everything there is free. You can have links to articles. And I have a blog that comes out almost weekly and information about seminars and teachings and things that I could give at your church or organization. So it's DouglasGrotheis.com. You can find a lot of material there, which I think will be helpful. Oh, wonderful. And we are going to pick this conversation back up and discuss how the Christian worldview is really the only foundation we have for equality and a hope for equality here on earth. 
You don't want to miss next week's episode, Mamas and Papas. It is truly one of my favorite topics. Our culture is obsessed with equality, and yet we cannot arrive at any kind of social imperative or cultural mandate for the virtue of equality without the Christian faith. Tune in next week to find out how our God and our faith is the foundation that is necessary for equality. I want to thank you for joining me today. Look, I know there are a lot of things you could be listening to right now, and I really appreciate that you took this time to spend with me. I hope you will join me for my next podcast when we take aim at some aspect of our culture that threatens to derail our parenting and steal our kids' faith. If you enjoyed this episode of Christian Parent Crazy World, would you consider telling a friend and sharing it on social media and giving it a good review over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and following me on Facebook and Instagram? Oh, oh, and maybe you could say that Christian Parent Crazy World is the best podcast you've ever heard in your entire life. Uh, Just a thought. Uh, and be sure to check out my website, which is katherineseegers.com. That's Catherine with a C. I have lots of articles and resources there that will help you on your parenting journey. And if you subscribe, I will be sure to send you some really cool free stuff and notify you of future podcasts, articles, and blogs. I want to end this and every episode with a word of encouragement. God gave you Your kids, your specific kids for a reason. That's because you hold the key to unlocking who God created them to be. We'll see you next time. Christian Parent Crazy World is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. The love of God is immeasurable. It's unchanging. It's indescribable. Because God loves you so much, you can sleep through the night in peace. With Abide Bible Sleep Meditation, you can fall asleep fast with relaxing sleep stories based on scripture. To start listening now, go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Abide Bible Sleep Meditation. You can also download the Abide app for more biblical meditations at abide.com.